go, but thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, listeners. Ground control to okay, well, that's going to do it for the local edition. We've got Trailer Talk with Sabrina Artel coming right up. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, public radio for the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. We are keeping you connected. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am so excited to be speaking with Jamie Helper about the world of plants, her world of plants and the journey that it has taken her on. I was introduced to Jamie at the farmer's markets in my neighborhood of Sullivan County Catskills, where Jamie also lives. And I would see her at her booth surrounded by plants that she had grown, that she was sharing information about, and by her handmade herbal skin products. And I've always wanted to speak to Jamie about this part of herself and how she really, um, relates and has gained this kind of knowledge with the plant world and and this journey that it's taking taking her on welcome to trailer talk jamie thank you you're it's so, nice to be here <laughs> oh it's so wonderful thank you so much for joining me and for having this conversation so jamie please introduce yourself to our listeners uh, my name is Jamie Helper. I live in Sullivan County it's in western New York in the Catskill region I came here from Jersey City, from Brooklyn, from Connecticut, from Chicago. So until I came here, I lived in cities all the time, and I just needed a place to grow figuratively and literally. And so I ended up in the Catskills. I've been here for about 16 years, raising my children and growing plants and such. So, Jamie, so from the big cities, you mentioned Jersey City, Brooklyn, Connecticut, Chicago, to this rural community of Sullivan County, New York. And how would you say then this evolved for you, your relationship with nature, with the plant world, and the knowledge that you've been sharing with community members? I think I really got close to nature and my desire to be in it when I was in Brooklyn. After college, I moved to Brooklyn and I lived around the corner from the library. And outside of working, I, you know, I had some time on my hands and I just spent lots of time at the library. I would take out all kinds of books and I took out some books on herbs and I became fascinated. And I had a, a few little health problems, nothing major, but I didn't really like the way that the doctors were addressing me or the problems. So it really became about control for me. I mm. knew that there were ways that I could um, control my health and my happiness and my life. And they really revolved around plants, either eating them or using them for various teas and concoctions. And I would experiment on my friends. If anyone was sick, I would tell them to come over to my house and I'd take out a book and <laughs> And they were very willing participants. And over time, I just, it was, it was powerful. You know, it, 
the knowledge that reading about the plants imparted and experimenting with the plants that I would buy from various shops in Brooklyn. There were lots of little herb shops where there'd be all these jars on the walls with all these different kinds of plants. And I always want yeah. my, my Hi, cat. Kitty. <laughs> What's your cat's name? Her name is Asada. Asada. Well, welcome to Trailer Talk. Oh, I don't know if she's going to stop talking. I'm sorry, but um, she's very vocal. Anyway, so the herbs were, I was just instantly intrigued and they were very powerful to me. It wasn't something I studied in college, but I started studying them very seriously on my own after college and just doing a lot of reading. And then I, um, when I got a little older and I had children, I, you know, I wanted to be able to use herbs for my kids too. And you know, you're, especially your first child, you're so particular about what goes uh-huh. in them and on them. And I wasn't satisfied with any of the products that were available for children. And I wanted to use, at this time, I couldn't find products that were made with herbs. Most. Mm. And when most, was this? This was, um, my first child was born in 1999. And you would see plenty of products that included essential oils, but not the whole herbs themselves. And my experience and my philosophy had always been that there was um, a certain kind of natural balance and intelligence about a whole plant as opposed to an extract. You know, drugs were extracts of herbs and sometimes in some cases synthesized versions of herbs. So I wanted to get back to the whole herb. So I started experimenting myself with um, skincare products made with whole herbs. Mostly for my children, but you know, when I do something, I kind of go all in. So I had so many supplies and so many products and I would just give them to friends and family and people started asking for more. Is this when you, you started heirloom botanicals or was that when you moved to the Catskills of New York? No, I was still in Brooklyn and then in Jersey city. And I started Heirloom Botanicals, but not officially. I was still just making products for myself and my family and um, friends. And then as the demand grew, and also during this time when I was having children, I wasn't working, but I needed, you know, means to make money. So I always had side hustles. I would cook Mm -hmm. vegan food or vegan cakes and all kinds of things. And when people started being interested in my skincare products, then I started selling those too. And that's when it really grew for me. I see. So that's when it really grew. And is that when your desire to get into the country, into a rural community? Okay. So the plants, would you say the plants led you there? The plants and people. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get closer to plants and further away from people. that's that's well said you wanted to get closer to plants and further away from people when you think back to that time so you were saying you had your first child in 1999 and you had already begun experimenting with plants and then that really accelerated when you had your first child is there a particular plant or something when you think back about that time that somehow was part of the guiding of you into a deeper relationship with the plant world? Yes. Um, I think at the time with the kids, it was always chamomile. Chamomile, you know, was just this 
wonderful herb that could do so many different things and it tasted good and it was tonifying. It was mild enough to use on a regular basis, but also powerful enough to help you when you were in distress. And for me, not just the herbs, but I I wanted to know the plants better and buying these dry desiccated herbs that someone else had cultivated didn't do it for me. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to get close to the plants in a way that I was interested in plants that I could cultivate myself, plants that were easy to grow in this environment and plants that I could wild craft because I felt like the plants that grew closest to you that thrived in the same environment that you thrived in were most likely to be beneficial. So my, probably my best plant friend is lemon balm. Mm. I have a lot of that that grows around me in the summer months. And it's hard to get rid of. I actually, the lemon balm that's in my garden now came from Jersey city and I've had it for decades and it's always been here since I've brought it here and it spreads and it comes back and it has beautiful little white flowers, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I love to cut it in the summer and put it in a vase on my kitchen table. It's just smells so good. And the pollinators love it. It's a really good plant. It's particularly good for me. And I feel like it, it's, it's tonifying for just about everybody. It's good for, it's a nerve tonic. And it just about everybody has issues <laughs> with anxiety yes. and, and nervous tension. It, it's beneficial for sleep and it's an antiviral. So it's one of those plants that, and it tastes amazing. Yes. So I use it year round. Particularly though, if I were ever feeling a little down, either physically or mentally. And it's also nice to bathe in. It's, it's, lemon balm is definitely my favorite herb. Hmm. But as I've been here, I've become acquainted with other herbs that I, I love almost as much, like elderflower and elderberries. Oh, yes. Yes. I, you know, they are, Really good friends. Actually, lemon balm and elderberry tea together are very nice, especially during cold and flu season. And they're also very good for your skin. So, you know, back to the herbal products, I would make really strong herbal teas and blend them into my um, creams and such. And I, I don't know. I just I like herbs that you can use without fear of um, harm. Because just because it's natural and it's an herb doesn't mean that it doesn't have the power to, you know, be used in a way that causes distress. So I like tonifying herbs, but they're also potentially, you know, powerful enough to help you heal. Elderflower, elderberry, lemon balm, chamomile is super easy to grow. Once you have it, you likely have it forever. And and mint, of course, mint. You're bringing up so many important points. You're mentioning your connection with tonifying herbs, but also just because it's an herb doesn't mean that it's safe, but the kinds that you like to work with. And also this idea of the whole plant, that there's there's a power innate in that and a kind of balance that when things are pulled out or separated, that that changes literally the recipe of it and the impact. Yes. So these and are the just, safety and the safety. 
I'm wondering if you can share with us also where you work, the Center for Discovery, what the center is. Well, um, through my works at the farmer's market, I met lots of people and there had been this position available at the Center for Discovery. And um, they reached out to me because they thought it might be a good position for me. And as it turns out, it's been wonderful. It's pretty much doing what I had been doing on my own with the, um, but not on my own. You know, there, there is an element to what they do there that just expanded the reach and the purpose of what I was doing. The Center for Discovery. Oh, wow. It's so much. I don't really even know how to, <laughs> how, how would you describe it? I would describe it as, I don't like the word institution because it's not an institution, but it's a, it's a place. Educational a, center. Well, it's not just as it's residential and educational. We have adults and children and we serve our clients, our um, adults and children, mainly with autism spectrum disorder or some other medical frailties mm-hmm. and um, intellectual disabilities. And what we do is we're a farm-based organization. So everything centers around this big biodynamic organic farm that uh, we run. Mm-hmm. And so all of our programs, our educational programs, our adult day programs have some element of farming and connection with nature. And there's a lot of focus on feeding your body in a way that encourages health and healing. And so what I do there is we have these gardens, um, they're healing gardens. So we grow all kinds of medical, medicinal and culinary herbs. We grow them throughout the season and then we harvest them and we bring them into our herbal workshop where we dehydrate them and we process them into teas and different herbs and spices that the center then uses and distributes to our houses. So Hmm. we have this philosophy where we go from seed to belly. So we nourish that plant from seed to the point that it's going to be food for ourselves and for our residents and for the the children that come there to school, we have community children that come to school there, but we also have children who live on campus there. Mm -hmm. And it's a really dynamic place. And I've learned so much working with, with the individuals um, in our care. And I also learned a lot about, I've gotten more acquainted with some of the plants that I love. I have to say that my work at the center for discovery, it was my first experience working closely with, individuals with autism spectrum disorder and um, other intellectual disabilities. And what we see, what's presented to us, <laughs> you know, in mainstream media and just in general, what what's presented to us mm-hmm. and what ideas we might have about the population that I work with is just so small, mm-hmm. so small compared to First of all, not only have I learned so much about these individuals, most importantly, what I've learned has been from the direct care workers that I work with, that work with these individuals, the depth of compassion and love and care that's exhibited is amazing. The individuals we work with are amazing. You know, I don't even like to use the word disability because they have capabilities beyond most other humans I know, mainly for compassion and caring, Mm -hmm. you know, 
and it's uh well thank you for sharing that yes and and what are you learning about the the impact and the potential of plants of this world that you had already been gaining so much knowledge and and had already immersed yourself in but what perhaps has surprised you in what you've been learning in this context at the well, Center think, for Discovery? I think I always thought about my relationship with plants as being personal mm. and presenting the plants to people for therapeutic use. But I never really thought about how therapeutic the process of interacting with those plants oh. is for everyone, not just drinking the tea, but growing the plant and touching the plant and watching the plant develop and working with it and engaging all of your senses in cultivating those plants and, and the work, just, just the work, just watching people be transformed by working with plants, never even having to ingest them, but still being touched by their presence, you know? Yes. I was about to say by, by their presence, that it's something I've always had a connection to since I can remember, but living surrounded by nature in in such a large way in the Catskills has taught me so much about my relationship with the natural world, with the plant world, with the world of wild beings. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And there's different levels of awareness you know, with different individuals, but, you know, there are times when, you know, like right now we're in the greenhouse and we're starting seeds, you know, there are some people that I will be with from the beginning to the end. And, you know, we discount so many things and we don't understand the impact of them until someone comes back to you when you're having a glass of chamomile tea and they tell you, I remember planting these seeds. So the whole, the life cycle. Yeah. And you mentioned this by engaging in the plant world, there's a a transformative potential. And also growing plants from seed. For me, you know, sometimes you can just have a day or a life or a week or a month or whatever, where you just don't feel like you're getting anything done. But when you plant a seed and a few weeks from now, you see a little bit of green sprouting and then you get it in the ground and a few months from now, there is a harvestable flower. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fulfilling. It's fulfilling in a way that, you know, that nothing else is. And so, Jamie, in connecting so deeply and increasing your own relationship with the plant world, what is this journey? Like, where are you on this journey at this point? How would you describe kind of where, where it's taking you? into yourself and into how you're perhaps relating to the world around you? Well, I think um, especially these last couple years where we've all been a little bit isolated to say Mm -hmm. the least, (laughs) it's given me purpose in times when it's been lonely, you know, it's it's given Mm -hmm. me, um, like I said, something that I can look to and see accomplishment. It's kept me outside it keeps my body moving. It keeps me motivated, you know, when maybe other things aren't going so great. And it reminds me that I 
do have the power to control something positive. It helps me reconnect with my creative energy. You know, um, sometimes when I'm stuck creatively, because I write as well, sometimes when I'm stuck creatively, I can go outside and I can um, be reminded of like the ultimate creative energy Mm. and tap into that and move forward. You know, it's, it's affected my writing, you know, it it affects my metaphors, you know, it, um, it affects your metaphors. Yes. And that in and of itself is a metaphor, right? (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of these metaphors, so it's taking you, your, your relationship with the plant world. Uh, and can we say the natural world when we say yes. the plant world? So this natural world that I feel so fortunate to be so deeply immersed in where where I live in the Catskills, is that also taking you into a place of a rediscovery of parts of yourself, would you say? Absolutely. Because um, like with the reading back in Brooklyn and even now, it's and even my escape here, it's a way of retreating. I'm a little bit reclusive and a little shy about some things, but I write music. And um, there came a point in time when I used to do it a lot. And then, I don't know, I just kind of shrunk and I did not want to be a part of the world so much. But when I'm connecting through plants, I can reintroduce myself in another kind of way. It gives me. Um, a little bit more uh, confidence, you mm-hmm. know, because these things I do, first of all, I can do them by myself. That was an issue with my skincare products. You know, you have to get all these ingredients from all around the world. All I need are seeds and mm-hmm. I can go from a seed to this magnificent creation that could happen with or without me, but I'm able to affect it and play a part in it. And it, gave me the courage to go back and re-examine how I do that in my other creative endeavors. I've, and I've been planting seeds. You've been, <laughs> you've been planting seeds. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if there's something you want to, I don't know, I guess, you know, we're coming towards the end of our conversation and I certainly hope we'll have more of these but that you want to share with our listeners, the things that you're mentioning are reminding me of, of these uh, relationships that we have that surround us and the potential for a certain kind of transformation. And you mentioned the senses, like when you think of plants, when you were talking to us about them, how they engage a multitude of our senses. So I'm just wondering if there's anything else you want to share. Um, if it's one thing that um, I try to keep with me, the lesson for me, especially at this stage in my life where my children are all getting older and they're all going to be leaving. It's just that, you know, it's the plants, they're always going to be here. And in some ways, so are we. And those things, Things that we want to do that maybe we feel like time has, you know, kind of passed in such a way that it's no longer possible. That's not true. It's always possible. I've had plants that have been seemingly dead for a season 
And then there's just a little bit of green. And with just a little bit of nurturing, I get a full grown healthy plant again. And I think it's important to treat ourselves that way and treat the people in our lives that way as well. You know, to remember that we're all a part of creation as well. And we all have the capacity to to grow, to change, to seemingly die back and, you know, come again. Is there anything because of this time of the pandemic that we are living in that has resonated for you? I mean, I know you mentioned, of course, it's been a time of isolation for so many of us and being able to enter into the world of nature and plants has given you so much. Is there any other kind of revelation or discovery that you've made during this time? Yeah, it actually made me, (laughs) for the first time in a very long time, miss people. So I started, you know, to put myself back out there again and, you know, reconnect with other creative people and started doing other things I love again, like making music and um, recording music and writing and DJing. Um, I, uh-huh. I know you've been involved locally <laughs> with that when that was possible, right? Right. So, that happened right before the yes. pandemic. And so I had to put that on hold, but I was able to do small, you know, interactions with people that I know and everyone was kind of grounded because of the pandemic. So I've been able to work with some really great creative people that otherwise might've been a little too busy for me. <laughs> and also I just want to share with our listeners that, you also posted this joy-filled video of yourself <laughs> ice skating to music on a pond. I mean, just recently. And there yeah. was something just so striking to me about that. Well, that was the culmination. That's a song I wrote, skating on the pond of a friend who I'd been, you know, having jam sessions with and just, you know, it's probably the most connection I've had creating with others, friends and people who've been my friends forever, but we just never had the opportunity to share this kind of relationship and the pandemic and other, oh my gosh, (laughs) just kind of made that possible. And um, Kitty's back. Yeah. She likes attention. She, Oh, I'm I'm glad I mentioned that video because it really struck me. It came across social media and uh, it just filled me with a kind of feeling of exuberance and that anything's possible, which you've certainly been sharing with us have been some of the lessons that, that you have gained from working with plants. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you were touched by it. I, I was, I was a little nervous to put it out there, you know, little self-conscious, but you know what? I'm overcoming those fears and plants definitely help me in that regard. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for speaking with me, for taking your time and revealing some of your, uh, connect, some of your connections to the plant world. Thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Jamie Helper about plants, about her connection with plants. She has the Heirloom Botanicals Project, which is handmade herbal skin products. She also works at the Center for Discovery, where she is in the healing garden and working with individuals there. And she has been speaking 
to me about this world, this incredible world that if we are fortunate enough, we get to interact with and to deepen our knowledge about. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA. We travel back to the Dominican Republic to unpack the history of the Perejil massacre and the consequences that live on today. The DR, like many other post-dictatorial nations around the world and their citizens, experience post-traumatic stress. That's this week on Latino USA. Friday afternoon at 2 on Radio Catskill. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Having your car towed is never a good feeling unless it means more public radio. Donate your unwanted car and help support this public radio station. Watch your car get towed away and feel good about it. Just go to WJFFradio.org and click Donate. Support public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. That's WJFFradio.org. Thanks. You're listening to Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina. This is Trailer Talk. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode today. My guest is John Philip Hamilton, and we are going to be talking about his project, the Record Museum, and his portable gallery. There's a show that he's curated in my county of Sullivan County, New York, in the Catskills at the Narrowsburg Union, and this is a portable gallery that John has taken to other places. And we're going to be talking about his concept behind this box, right? This, this portable gallery that travels and that contains records, LPs, albums. These are names that I grew up calling these incredible discs that play music and that are still a favorite of mine. So I want to welcome John Philip Hamilton to Trailer Talk. Hi, John. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here at the uh, trailer. Yes, thank you for joining me at this kitchen table. Because of Trailer Talk, I am very interested in the portable, the mobile, just like this kitchen table of Trailer Talk. Yes. <laughs> right? How did you come up with this idea of a portable gallery of the record museum? Like all good ideas, I was I was at a bar with my friend Danny <laughs> and just coming up with ideas of what to do 
in uh, living in New York City. And um, the idea of uh, celebrating the art and the history of the record album specifically was of strong interest to me. But uh, gallery space is uh, very expensive in the city, as as is everything. So I was uh, meditating on it and I was like, well, why don't I do something that's similar to as one might shop for records? You could very well explore a gallery of art in a crate like a record. And so Musée dans une caisse was a phrase that came to mind from the French, which means museum in a box. And originally the idea was maybe to put together gallery, one crate called Gallery One, and a folding table and uh, set up at some green markets in the city, possibly, or maybe around the corner from uh, a great record store. Or even there's some dudes that were out there. There was one gentleman on 8th and 23rd who sold records uh, throughout the, uh, the aughts and the teens and just let people check it out. And it would be the idea it would be rotating and it'd be a different uh, theme, but Every time it would be something focused on the LP itself, the cover, the sleeve, the record, uh, or something that extended from that. I love this idea and I'm very connected to it because of my own project with Trailer Talk. And it makes me think of other projects like the, you know, kind of traveling libraries and barber shops and, and then other curators, artists who are creating works that are more mobile or portable. Uh, you mentioned the the man, you know, on on the street over on, I think you said Eighth Avenue in the city. I mean, I certainly had my favorite LP salespeople, you know, who would who would spread out the blanket on the sidewalk or or the table with LPs. And that is a really fun and social activity. And also one, as you mentioned, that contains history, right? Embedded within each album is a history. So I'm wondering if you can share with us when you think of your first or your first handful of albums, like take us back there and to this, this uh, kind of road that's led us to this moment of speaking about your record museum project. Certainly. As a child of the 70s, I inherited my parents' 45 collection because they were adults. They no longer were sitting around playing these singles. They were listening to long play albums or whatever. And so my introduction was through the 45s and hearing the girl groups or Elvis or Ray Charles or uh, Bill Haley. And uh, from that, that was I became fixated on the various uh, designs of the uh, labels, their logos. And that always stuck with me. And then, of course, just the, uh, again, these 45s were all contained in carriers, little portable suitcases, if you will, to carry your records around. So maybe that just kind of informed everything right off the bat. And then um, throughout my childhood, there would be some significant purchases. A neighbor's kid got Magical Mystery Tour as a birthday gift. He hated it. I bought it off him. I loved it. The uh, the early days in my teens in the 80s, I would travel. I, I, well, first of all, I grew up in a suburban hell called Brandon, Florida, outside of Tampa. And it was really a, 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 a giant nowhere. 
Uh, in fact, uh, death metal was the, it was the capital of death metal in the eighties. So Brandon, Florida, <laughs> Brandon, Florida. So it was really, there was like a major reaction to this total zero of a place. So we would drive to the outskirts of the County to go to these various record stores, one of which was Final Fever. And there relied upon older salespeople who knew about jazz, knew about indie rock, knew about fusion, knew about uh, R&B. And they kind of helped inform my purchases, used records, of course. In the 90s, uh, after college, I moved to San Francisco and uh, really fell in love with the music scene there. And the record stores there were some of the um, most amazing of all. Rasputin in the East Bay and, of course, Amoeba Records. Right. Oh, Amoeba. Uh, I I still have my Amoeba bag, my canvas bag that I I use for things. (laughs) And and some of the best purchases of vinyl I ever did was in the uh, late 90s into the aughts when people were just chucking all their vinyl because the CDs had taken over. And uh, they had more than they knew what to do with. So I was purchasing albums for a dollar that, you know, should have been much more than that and really beefed up my collection. Oh, it's I love hearing this story. I mean, I am thinking about what records, what albums bring up for me. And they do take me immediately to my childhood, to, as you described, your parents not wanting their 45s and handing them down to you. I'm thinking of my older sister passing albums down to me and at things like, uh, you know, like the Beatles revolution. And um, I'm thinking like the Stones sticky fingers or, mm. and I'm thinking of Barry Manilow of all things, receiving that as a birthday present when I was a girl, you know, and just kind of this variety. And I had the, the special plastic covers for them. And I made sure they were very straight in the cabinet so they wouldn't get warped. And you mentioned, of course, the cover art of the album, of the label, and just really having a whole universe of my reality was swirling in and around the records and the music that was coming from them. Are you finding that with your portable gallery, you know, your museum in a box, that consists of what, about 20 to 25 albums? I believe it's, yeah, 25 um, framed artifacts. Framed artifacts. Are you finding that these stories are emerging from the people that are going to your shows? To a certain extent. The interesting thing is both you and I were into probably records that had the artist's photos and their lyrics. But as you went further back, uh, in uh, you know the 50s or 60s, um, there were things that they kept coming across that were the label trying to promote hi-fi or their own uh, technology or informing the consumer how best to clean, how to use your needle. Um, and so I started focusing on the sleeve as this kind of promotional tool. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. the impetus for the first gallery show that, that the museum has called the... Um, wearing our label on our sleeve, the incomplete history of uh, record promotion. And so that helped inform uh, the history sort of kind of assembled as I started going through all these sleeves that predate, um, you know, the artist's uh, intent and control of the the vinyl. I see. So the show that you have, have up now 
wearing our label on our sleeve an incomplete history of record promotion, which is at the Narrowsburg Union in Narrowsburg, New York. Can you talk about that concept then specifically and, and how you curate the sleeves, what's in the box? I will. And, but to answer your question real quick, yeah. yes, I think uh, as people flip through, there is a sense of memory. And, um, and as they hit certain sleeves, certain things would pop out. I don't have any specific memories, but uh, you could see certain people really dwelling over them or sharing something mm-hmm. with their, their partner while standing there. And so, John, what about the concept? Had you come up with the portable exhibit? Uh, so the once I had this idea, I started uh, just writing down ideas of, of what to feature in the, uh, the gallery, uh, how, to, how to execute it. And I would dwell over this and I would add to it over the years. And then finally last year uh, in the summer of 2019, I was like, okay, I have to do this. I have the time. Why not? And so the, I built crates and I called through uh, my entire collection for these different um, paper sleeves that would feature uh, all the uh, promotional tools that the, the labels would use Mm. uh, through the sleeve and a narrative started to appear. And it, it basically had a linear one in that the early days, it was about promoting hi-fi. And then it was about celebrating the label as the best in, in its, in its field. And then it became um, more focused on the um, stable of artists. And, um, and through that, the artists own uh, vanity labels. And then it uh, featured, uh, I figured out that they started uh, to do direct sales to the people buying these records because um, uh, they had a, a captured audience. And so there would be different ways that they would attempt to do this through humor or through lingo of the day that is a bit uh, corny now when you read these things. And um, this is so interesting what you're sharing, John. So, so I was thinking so much of the music and, and the object of this, this kind of this square record cover and I wasn't really as aware as what you're sharing with us about these details of the cover art and the design that goes into the label and um graphics and then the technologies and and the historic aspects of the record itself and how one played the record. So you're, you're kind of bringing up all these different things. So what was your entrance into this idea and what you're well, wanting to share with your audience? It was weird that I just arrived at promoting, going, uh, yeah. choosing the record sleeve, which is just a piece of paper to most people holding the, the piece of vinyl. Right. And just started focusing on that because I, I hope to do many more gallery shows featuring more of the obvious uh, elements such as cover artwork or, mm-hmm. or uh, just, uh, you know, other ideas. And so uh, I, once I settled on, uh, I came up with enough uh, representation, uh, representational uh, artifacts. It just made sense to start with this and try to cobble together a narrative uh, of the record industry th- up, up from the fifties to the eighties, uh, basically. And it was fun. It was fun to kind of uh, 
come up with an order in which to present uh, the various uh, sleeves without getting too dry or dull. I added a little humor to the gallery guide. I tried right. to punctuate the show with uh, the the Hot Lips Rolling Stones um, label um, that premiered in 1971. That was featured on their inner sleeves for the records that came out that year for the first time. Uh, Playboy actually had their own label um, for jazz and R&B and comedy and folk. And uh, one of those sleeves are featured with their iconic image in a uh, wallpaper style. And there's many others such as uh, Casablanca and all these other smaller labels when they're beautiful uh, label artwork are also featured. So there's a balance between this kind of um, old fashioned uh, technology talk and more of the uh, uh, hipper uh, zesty, uh, you know, uh, right. Images. And this narrative that you're talking about, that the narrative of the record industry that emerges as you're doing your research and and you're curating this portable gallery, the record museum, museum in a box, you know, um, what has emerged right now for you? What What is it that you're exploring? Well, I think... Uh... There has been enough interest uh, in it that, it, that it, it makes me feel very happy that I actually spent the time and effort to do it. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, propelling me to, 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 to move ahead with um, future gallery uh, ideas. And the, I have one for the new year now. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's more than just a gimmick because, I mean, the museum in the box is probably how I will continue to present it, mm-hmm. But on the occasion that I can put these up on the wall and allow people time to observe it, um, and that's wonderful too. So I'll I'll take it any way I can get it in that regards. But I just love the idea of being able to just just set up anywhere and just see who's interested and who gets into it, and um, as long as it's uh, re- received uh, by at least a handful of people, I, I feel pretty good. Uh, most people are, may think, oh, I'm, I'm going record shopping. They're like, no, this isn't records. This is, uh, I don't know what this is, but. Uh, some so it's actually, die. right, right. So it's it's not going record shopping. And in some ways it's mimicking that feeling of what that was like or what that is like for people who are yes. collecting vinyl, but you're actually going deeply into the sleeves and the art and different labels. So, for this exhibit that that is in in my neighborhood in the Sullivan County Catskills wearing our label on our sleeve i mean of course there's a double entendre there as well so what is it that you you're getting at with this one and then if you're able to give us a little bit of an idea of what you're you're currently working on uh, that you said will be your upcoming sure thing project. yeah i think it was just um the idea was to focus on, yeah, the, the graphic that represents the, uh, the show. I had a lot of fun putting together. It's just, you know, an arm filled with tattoos of great looking, um, small labels. And, uh, and yeah, just, it was, I was, uh, it was fun to explore all the labels and how they were trying to just sell, sell, sell. But then also you could see the trend of the artist, uh, dictating. Uh, everything about the record and mm-hmm. that meant that they had their own vanity label that they had their own uh wants and there were people like mickey gilly huge successful um country star and entrepreneur in the uh 70s and 80s and he chose to promote uh stuff to sell like with his name on it like 
uh, suspenders, beer clocks, uh, beer can clocks, mm-hmm. an actual uh, mechanical bull. And he just had a, an order. Uh, you know, you could just order it from him uh, somewhere in Texas. So there, that was that's not <laughs> you just have your mechanical uh, bull arrive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, it was very expensive to ship, but uh, I'm sure. Oh, that's fascinating. I wasn't aware of that, actually, uh, you know, in the in the albums I had. Uh, you know, I don't know if I I missed it or they just weren't on those. Mickey Healy was not in your collection, obviously. I, so. Obviously not, but I am. You, you know the the graphics that you described of of the labels. You know, like are are in and of themselves. Of course, they are art. You know, so I'm um, I'm looking here on your site. You know, you've got RCA and Acer and Volt and. Storyville and Soul City and, you know, very, very specific images uh, and graphic design behind them, of course. And so you're mm-hmm. really bringing our attention to that. And I just wanted to say uh, a quick thank you to Crystal Grow, the curator at the galleries at the Union at uh, Narrowsburg. And just to point out that my good friend, Andy Sumter, show poster art artist from the 80s, he's featured in that show. I think it's a great exhibit. What what um what are you working on right now? Ah, so yes, to follow. So the next uh, idea there, there's two. There's um uh so the idea of the interactive album uh, it, it it cuts uh, several different ways, but in my mind it would be a fun uh, gallery show and and they are various. There's there are actual record albums the 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 covers that our artists produce that you could turn into something like you could cut paste and turn it into a, uh, a truck. You could turn it into uh, like Alice Cooper's schools out becomes a desk. Um, so there's these other, there's these, Oh, what know, are some other examples? Um, the George Jones had an album that you could construct into his tour bus. Um uh, there's a couple others that I'm failing, but so there, there was that aspect. And then I was like, well, there's also albums that you had to go and cut out from the back of cereal boxes that were 45s in the seventies and sixties. And um, those vinyl inserts of magazines that uh, one had to cut out to play on your record player. So there was that aspect. And then there was also uh, the actual content where, there were albums that would be released that would be minus a part, like a jazz trio. And as a saxophonist, you could play along. Or there were series of um, records featuring artists doing one side of a dialogue that could have been like a murder mystery. And there were these albums in the 70s and 80s that would go out to DJs and it would be written questions and the actor or the director or the musician talking about their film or their album um, giving the answer. And th- so those are those are bizarre uh, now to think of, uh, but they're completely interactive. And oh, that's finally, fascinating. Yeah. The, the other element of interactive was uh, some musicians would make uh, samples like like Dewey Redmond recorded several albums of these one minute, 30 second uh, ja- uh, saxophone solos. And you could, and I, and I have them and you could see where they were scratched or they were used. And there's all those, all those records that were used by DJs that are all scratched. They're like grooved artifacts. So the, it's all over the place right now, but I'm hoping to feature right. some, some oh. of all of that. Oh, that sounds incredible. 
How many albums do you have? I, uh, I'm looking at most of them now. I'm not sure. Um, what do you, come on, give us an idea. It's not that many really. Uh, really? I've had to move around a bit and, uh, there's been times when I've, uh, I've, you know, I've been more flush, so I, I could purchase certain items, but um, a couple thousand, at least probably. A couple thousand. And at, when did this begin for you? When did this emerge, this idea of of the portable gallery, of the record museum? It uh, began, I, well, I started thinking about it probably about eight years ago. And, um, okay. and uh, I, I have other interests. So there would be this cue in my head when <laughs> when to do something next, and it just finally moved up because there was uh you know there was uh, I had the time and uh, it, during COVID it seemed like a perfect time to just be by myself and work on this yes. and then offer this up as someone to as something that someone could explore on their own without uh, you know hope being on their own and um, and uh, and being portable and being being able to you know go with the flow could be indoors, could be outdoors. Right. Yeah. So, and so there's been this journey with vinyl, with the record, of course, like you were saying, people were just dumping them. I think you said in the late nineties, I lost track when that happened. And all of a sudden, I guess at that point it was the CD, right. And then, and yes. Yeah. And uh, MP3s, I think were, or, you know, uh, I think it was still a couple of years away from um, right, Napster. a couple right, like a couple of years away from that, and yet, so what do you make of the fact that LPs are back? You know that they they actually are so popular, both for the historic reasons and the collecting reasons, but also for artists that are releasing vinyl now. You I, know, I mean it's 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 great that there is interest in. Because there is a there is a warm sound tone when you listen to a yeah. record that that is pr- produced a certain way and or, and and through the needle and so that is special. Some things that just get a digital remastering and put on vinyl, uh, it, it's not the same. And I guess some of these releases that people make, they're used to now putting out eighty plus minute albums. So that means four discs of four vinyl discs. So that gets expensive. So I, I, it's it's a mixed bag. I think I think there's mm-hmm. there's a reason to have it. It's maybe very expensive. And during um, the recent time, I know a lot of uh, independents were having trouble uh, producing records because they couldn't get the vinyl. And um, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, it's a mixed bag. I'm glad that people are interested. And there's uh, and it actually helps uh, draw interest to the museum because uh, it's it's something that they like and are into and maybe weren't aware that that piece of paper actually used to promote yes how to use your needle or (laughs) oh my goodness I you're really bringing back memories for me (laughs) my obsession with going to the stores to pick out just exactly the right needle and the cleaner and I mean all kinds of things so we're we're coming close to the end I just wonder if there's anything else you want to share with us John uh I, uh, I, I, uh, I just feel like I, uh, it was a, uh, it was something that I envisioned uh, just doing in the city, but then I was able to do elsewhere um, during the pandemic. And it's something that I hope to do, maybe uh, get on the road with my own trailer and, uh, and feature the, uh, 
the art and the history of the uh, the record. Well, I and, love this, John. We can, we can partner up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be perfect. Well, uh, it's just so wonderful to speak with you. And you've brought my awareness to things I wasn't even thinking about when I think about records and vinyl. And uh, I just uh, am so happy that you were able to join me in talking about your project, The Record Museum, which is a celebration of the record album and the different aspects of that. Uh, I want to encourage people to visit therecordmuseum.com to find out more about your project. And if you are fortunate enough to be in and around the Sullivan County, New York Catskills, you're able to go to John's show, Wearing Our Label on Our Sleeve, An Incomplete History of Record Promotion. And that is at the galleries at the Narrowsburg Union in Narrowsburg, New York. And it runs through March 19th. And it's just been great to speak with John about his concept, a museum in a box, a portable gallery, 25 LPs, but really diving deep into different aspects of this object that we call an LP or a record. So thank, thank you so much, John. I appreciate it so much, Sabrina. Thank you. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with John Philip Hamilton. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Support comes from Restorative Management, a new treatment provider of outpatient substance abuse services, now in Monticello, serving Sullivan County. Are you or a family member impacted by drugs or alcohol? Information and assistance at 845-250-1115 or restorativemanagement.com. From The Cooperage Project in Honesdale, thecooperageproject.org. And from listeners like you. I'm Daryl Brogdon. We're at the Underground Martini Bunker again to hear the music that's always shaken, not stirred. We're here with the Retro Cocktail Hour every week on WJFF Radio Catskill in Jeffersonville, New York. And you are most welcome to join us. Wednesday night at 8 on Radio Catskill. WJFF, Jeffersonville. Public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. Support comes from The Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville. Featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. VintageHouseJVille.com and on Instagram at VintageHouseJVille.
You're listening to the Retro Cocktail Hour. <laughs> 